second to last in our series on uh, identity from the book of Romans. Um, next week, our buddy Chris Hall will be speaking here uh, Sunday morning. So uh, the other pastor, Dave, and I are going to a conference. We'll be here, but we're getting back late Saturday night. So Chris will be speaking with us. Uh, I think that'll be great. And then the week after that, we'll do our last in, uh, in this series. Uh, we've been talking about identity. Or in other words, who are you? Why are you that? What makes you that? That kind of thing. Um, we've been trying to emphasize uh, uh, basically one point all throughout this. And uh, that idea is that your identity is caught up in who Jesus is. And who Jesus is determines who you are and your identity if you're in him. Uh, this morning we're going to start in chapter or yeah, chapter 8 of Romans, verse 14. And I'll, I'll read to you says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So then, uh, the... The point this week, the, the big idea is this, your identity is caught up in this, is if you are in Christ, if you know Jesus, then you are a son or a daughter of, of God. So we've talked about a lot of things uh, throughout this. We started way back with the bad news, yes, you are a sinner. We then talked about how, how though you're a sinner, if you're in Christ, you've been justified by God. Your position uh, with God has been changed. We talked about... Uh, um, about other things, uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about the concept that though you were a slave to sin, you've now become a slave uh, to to righteousness. Uh, and then last week um, we talked about, um, or we talked about how I don't even remember what, what did we talked about last week. Guys? <laughs> I knew where I was going, and then all of a sudden I'm like, the the point I was. Uh, was going to make is simply this. We've talked about all of all of these things, and then uh, it progresses uh, to this idea. And this is, in a lot of ways, sort of the unifying idea of the text. That all of that draws together in this. And what I hope you're getting, and what I hope you will get, is that really these messages haven't changed any of the weeks. We've given different names, we've given different uh, application, but really the idea is the same, is that your identity is caught up not in what you do, but in who Jesus is. And the thing that I'm hoping to rail against, the thing I'm hoping to speak against, the thing I'm hoping that you hear is this idea, is that Christianity is not and never has been about what you do. It is about and always has been about what Jesus has done, right? I, I fear because I, I, I speak these messages regularly, and if you if you know us, we always say, you know, welcome to Crosswinds. We have one message: we preach Jesus. We regularly preach Jesus. We preach the gospel in a an unvarnished, uh, undoctored format. We teach it week after week after week after week. And you would think that people would would get that, and people would in, internalize it. But then sometimes you talk to a person and their concept of what the gospel is is counter to the concept of the Bible and counter to what we've what we preached. And my fear is sometimes is that people have received what I call gospel inoculation. If you know anything about um about vaccines and the way a vaccine works, is that they take a vaccine to give you a vaccine, 
uh, say they don't want you to get the flu, what they do is take a dead and weakened strain of the flu virus and they inject that virus into your body so that your body learns to recognize the dead form of that and keeps you from ever getting the alive form of that. My fear is, as, I, as I'm around people who have been in church for any amount of time yet don't get the gospel, is that what, they, what has happened is they've been gospel inoculated. They have gotten a small piece of the gospel into them, but it's a dead strain or a dead virus, and it inoculates or keeps them from, from the real thing. And so in the church in America, in the, in the church in my experience, as I encounter people, there are a lot of people who have been inoculated to the gospel by a false form of the gospel which says that what is really important is how you behave. And God really wants you to be a good boy or he wants you to be a good girl and you must do this or do that or God will not love you. That is a false gospel. It is a lie, but it has enough of, of talk about Jesus and enough of, of seeming like the right thing in it, that when it gets into a person, it inoculates them against the truth of the real gospel. Because it puffs them up with the idea that, yes, I'm good. Yes, I'm working hard. Yes, I'm doing the right thing. And so they change Christianity into the message of what the, what the individual does instead of the true message of what Christ has done. And the problem with gospel inoculation is if you get just a, the dead virus of Christianity into you, the weakened virus that says, well, Jesus is important, but what's more important is that you're good. What's more important is what you do. What's more important is that you behave this way, this way, and this way. When they get that into it, it keeps them from actually encountering the person of Jesus. And the bad news is this, is that only the person of Jesus can rescue them. Only the person of Jesus can 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 save them, only the person of Jesus can actually make them able to ever actually be good. And so it is this crazy thing where I see Christians um, or, or people who would claim to be Christians or people not growing at least in the Christianity, I see them like uh, like hamsters in the wheel or or like people on a treadmill that is going very, very fast. They are running as hard as they can to measure up to what they think the standards of Christianity are, but what they're actually doing is running in place because the motivation behind that or the heart behind that is not the person and the glory of Jesus. It is motivation by right behavior. And if you can behave right, then you can measure up. And if you measure up, then you can have personal esteem. You can depend on yourself. And so really what is happening in our culture and what I see in the church is a gospel of self-dependence, a gospel of work harder, a gospel of what we have previously said again and again is called moralism, right? I see a lot of this in, in the church. And my fear is, as we've gone through this whole series, where you should have heard again and again and again this message, it is what Jesus has done for you. It is Jesus who rescues you. You are so sinful that you never could please him. You are so sinful that in and of yourself you never would please him. You needed Jesus to come and die to rescue you apart from anything that you have done and apart from anything that you will do. That is the gospel that we have preached again and again and again and again and again. And my fear is is that some people, though they hear that message, they doubt it because of human influencers or because of other things they have heard and continue to try to earn the favor of God through right behavior. But the idea that you can earn God's favor through right behavior or through the things that you do is just a damnable, as damnable a lie or just as dangerous a lie as the idea that you don't need to please God at all. Those are both lies. And my worry is that you would continue to sit here in our congregation here week after week, not just for me, because when Pastor Dave preaches, he preaches this message. 
When Chris Hall comes to preach next week, he'll preach this message that you would hear from me that the gospel of Jesus Christ is solely and 100% about the work of Jesus Christ, about what he has done to rescue people like you and I who did not deserve it, could not deserve it, did not measure up, would not measure up, who were broken and deserving of separation, death, and hell from him, that you would continue to come in and translate that in your head somehow into some message where if you behave like a good little girl or a good little boy, you do the right things, you don't drink the wrong things, you don't smoke the wrong things, you don't say the wrong things, you don't act in the wrong way. If you follow a set of cultural standards which you have have aligned for yourself, that if you do that, then somehow the God of the universe will be pleased with you. That is not good news. It is bad news, and I, I am worried that somehow, in the midst of this, that people will come into a congregation like ours, hear the good news, and make it into bad news. That is a problem. So, again, I want to emphasize that we have preached one message throughout this series. The message throughout this series is this, is that you and I are sinners, the good news is is that God has in His sovereignty, in His awesomeness, in His will, by His choice, decided to rescue us. That rescue did not happen based upon anything that we did, but 100% on what He has done. The, the work has been accomplished. Ephesians 1.4 says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. He said at the cross, when he went to the cross, when he was about to die, it is finished. I want you to understand just how little you matter in your salvation. So that you understand clearly that your salvation is all glory due to God who saves and no glory due to you who contributed nothing to your salvation but the need for it. You do not, cannot measure up. And so that goes back to week one. But we come then to this morning to a passage I think that emphasizes this concept again. And so we'll look again at verse 14. Now, let me give you just the parentheses. Some people would say then, well, so are you saying that a person who's a Christian can behave any way they want and do whatever? I'm absolutely not. But you, you have been shown clearly how it is only through the grace and the goodness of a rescuing God and an actual encounter with him that any sort of holiness is possible. And in fact, the week after this, when, when we come back, the final message in this series will be, you are holy. It's a part of your identity. And I'm not arguing at all that a person should not leave their sin. I am simply arguing that apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, a person never does leave their sin. So, uh, but continue on in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Uh, Paul's used all kinds of imagery, all kinds of different things to talk about us, but all of a sudden now in in chapter 8, he's going to shift to this one for the first time, and he's going to call us sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. This is is a major and a massive change. This means that your relationship to the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, the judge of the universe, the everything that has to do with the universe, like we sit here this morning and this planet spins because God's hand is upon it, because God allows it, tells us, tells it to spin. We do not believe, uh, for instance, in pantheistic religion. In other words, God set the world in place and then he walked away and it runs on his own. Rather, we believe that God himself continues to keep the planet spinning in place and that his hand is on all of it. And if God should ever remove his hand, then the world would cease to spin and we would all cease to be. That is our, our belief. And so as we sit here this morning on a planet 
that we sit on because there's gravity, because God designed it to be so, and because God holds us uh, uh, in in place. As we sit here this morning considering that it is God who does all that, we must be struck by the bigness of God. He is bigger than you can comprehend. He is bigger than you can imagine. The problem with most of us is that we have a God who is small and um, and and first, small and mostly interested in the things that interest us on any given day, right? And so our, our conception or our thoughts about God typically only lean towards what can he do for me today? How can he help me today? This is the proverbial teenager who has not studied for the test, praying that they will get an A on said test. That is a lot of our conceptions of God, that he would, that he would intervene and fix the stupid stuff that we have already done, right? And by the way, I will not argue that this God is not interested in your day-to-day and that this God is not interested in your tiny little minutia. I absolutely believe he is, but what I want you to understand is how big of a miracle, how amazing of a thing it is that he is interested in all of that because he is the maker of the planet. He is the maker of, of the universe. We sit in a, on a planet and revolve around the sun and yet out there, there are, are millions more suns Billions more suns out there spinning. There's ones that are way, way, way larger than ours. We're in a solar system spinning around. There's there's nine planets here, but in the in the universe and in the galaxy, and as all of it expands out, it's not even comprehensible. Scientists can't study it. Scientists can't see it. Scientists can't understand it because it's too large to comprehend. And so, in the midst of all that, if you take a picture of us from outer space, uh, Isaac Asimov, the scientist, is famous for referring to us as the tiny blue dot because they took a, a, a picture of our <coughs> of our galaxy from outer space and all you could see is if you looked really hard was a tiny blue dot. That's the tiny blue dot we live on. And, and I want you to understand that the God of the universe is in charge of all of that and he's holding all of that and he made all of that. And I want you to get that so that you understand how big of a deal it is when it says, now then, if you are led by the Spirit, you are sons and daughters of God. Right? This is no small thing. This is no tiny thing. You're not, this is not like, um, this is not like being the friend of a local celebrity, right? Um, sometimes you meet someone who's like, who's like Grand Rapids famous, and you might even know someone who's Grand Rapids famous, and you go around telling people, yeah, I know them, they're my friend, right? And they might not be your friend, but you talk to them once, so you get to like, you're getting crowd because you know, this is not like Grand Rapids famous, guys. And this is not like, like this is the God of the universe. And he's calling you a son or a daughter. This is a massive change in, in who you are. So this is, when you say, when I say, and I do believe that God's interested in your minutia and the tiny stuff of your day, but you need to realize that the God who is interested in your minutia and the tiny stuff of your day is interested because if you're in Christ, he is your father and you are his son and his daughter, but you need to understand just how big your father's job is, how much work that he does, who it is and how amazing that, that it is. This is not some small time person, some small time celebrity, something small time that's taken interest. It is the God of the universe. He's made it all. He spoke it into being. Everything that is exists because he said, and he continues to hold it there. You do not even have the capacity. We don't have even a, a, a tiny bit of the capacity to understand all that exists in the galaxies far beyond and in the universe beyond us. 
we, we don't have the ability to comprehend it. It's much too big. The finest, the greatest scientists know that they, they have only, they've only scratched a tiny bit of the surface of what there is to know about existence, about all that is. And yet the God who made that, who designed it, who by his word caused it to be, the science behind that was, was the, the engineer behind that. All of that existed in the collective mind of God before it was. And when he spoke, it went from his mind to existence. It went from what he thought to, to maternal or material existence. It was. So I want you to understand, first of all, how big of a deal it is when we say, say that for all who are led by the Spirit are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Saying this is like, you're a child of God. You should not be fearful of Him as though He would be your father, as he would be, you would be His son or His daughter. And in your relationship to Him, you should live in fear of Him. He is not that kind of God. That he would enslave you, that he would that he would abuse you, that he would that he would ignore you, right? And so it's always interesting sometimes, especially in our context, to talk about the concept of what it means to have God as a father, when the fact is that we live in a generation that is, by and large, fatherless, right? Uh, we live in a generation that ha- has had fathers walk away, had fathers never be there. We have a father, and so we live in a generation that lives with the struggle of that. And so sometimes when we approach Scripture to say then that he is your father, we don't know how to respond that, to that, and we don't know how to process that. I, I, I do thank God that my, my, because of my personal background, because I've had a father in my life, this is often easier for me to comprehend than some of you who have not had, had a father. Uh, the big cultural thing this week was, was Kelly Clarkson singing on, on American Idol. Uh, I know most of us don't watch American Idol anymore, but it found its way to Facebook and, and to other places. But Kelly Clarkson sang a song called Pieces, which was dedicated to her husband and to her, her birth father. And the song was all about how her birth father had left at an airport and walked away and never been in her life and how she couldn't comprehend the concept of what a father was. And she didn't understand why a father would ever walk away. How could a father do this? And then the, the, the later part of the song is all about how now she's married and she has a husband who is a great father. And she's encountering this concept now of what a father could be and what a father could have been. And the amazingness of a husband who is a great father. And she's encountering fatherhood through that. And I do need to, to say this and to apologize that fatherlessness, um, in our time and in our culture is rampant and it's epidemic and it's awful and it is not how it was intended to be. And in fact, this guy, who this, this, this God of Scripture who says that he, you are his sons and his daughters, says that uh, because he designed it to be that way. And there's also an understanding then for those of you who have grown up without fathers and grown up in fatherlessness, that, that there might be some reticence or some lack of understanding. There might be some struggle and there might be some pain and there might be some hurt. I would say to you, I understand that. But your earthly father was only meant to point you to a greater father. You have not, if you have grown up without a father or lost a father, you have not lost your greatest father. You have lost, unfortunately, the one whose job it was to point you to him. And I want to apologize to you for our culture and apologize to you for our time and apologize to you on behalf of fathers. That is not how it was meant to be. 
You were meant to have a father who loved you. You were meant to have a father who cared for you. You were meant to have a father who walked with you. You were meant to have a father who taught you what it meant to be a young man. You were meant to have a father who taught you what it meant to be loved as a young lady. That was all intended for you. And I apologize for the brokenness of our time and the sin of our time that has taken that from you. That is awful. And yet, as we dig in, I do want you to hear this. That the God of Scripture saying He wants to be your Father is greater. It's more powerful. And even though it doesn't feel like in our humanity, it's more meaningful even than a human, a human father. It was your human father's job to teach you what it meant to have a father. Your human father was meant to forecast to you or tell you uh, the story beforehand of what God wanted to be to you. And so when you have a father like that, it helps you understand. And so I, I apologize for our culture. And I want you to know that, that one of the things, like uh, my ministry in the last uh, 20 years now of urban ministry has been dealing largely with father, fatherlessness. You know, uh, I work with young, young men in the city a lot, and they don't have dads. And, uh, and that's awful. It stinks. It's terrible. And so what I do a lot of times is I try and step in and I try and father. And I say a lot of times urban ministry is reparenting a lot. You're trying to be a father to people. But I want you to hear this and I want you to try to go beyond your experience. Go beyond your how you grew up. Go beyond that and hear this as, as good news. For all who are led by the Spirit our sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption of sons. So that's what I was going to say also is this. Is that some, of us, some of us grew up with dads, but they were abusive. Some of us grew up with dads, but they weren't accepting. Some of us grew up with dads, but we could never please them. Some of us grew up with dads, but our dads never seemed satisfied with us, right? So some of you grew up in, in those situations. I want you to hear this, is that you were not made to have that spirit in your sonship. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You're not made to be afraid of a dad. If your dad was someone who caused fear in you, if your dad was someone who was abusive to you, if your dad was someone who hurt you, or if he was just never there, there, you were not made to have those feelings of that, but you were made to have sons. You were made to be sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is a term of endearment. It's a term of endearment. It, 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 it's a personal address, right? It, it means that... that that it goes from that place when he said you're made to have a relationship with God where you call him Abba, Father. That you have a term of endearment, it's personal. It is not a distant relationship with this Father. It's not a distant relationship with this, this God. It's not one where it's like, yeah, that's my dad, but I don't really know him. Yeah, that's my dad, but I've never really met him. Right? I've heard uh, uh, horrific stories. One of those is the story of uh, Jalen Rose, who was a basketball player first for the University of Michigan and then uh, in the NBA. And he was the son of another NBA player. But this NBA player never wanted to have anything to do with him. In fact, he knew that that was his dad, but his dad, who was, who was uh, a millionaire, allowed Jalen to grow up in, in, the, in the hood in Detroit with nothing. He allowed his mom to suffer and he allowed all of that struggle to happen. And I, I remember listening to Jalen talk about this, how later on his dad came back and tried, tried to talk to him, and he, and he was like, who are you? I don't even know you, right? 
So there, there's a difference between having a father who, who just who, who, who gave nothing to us except for, for the DNA to exist, right? And having a father who is, a father who is in, in the life and a father whom we know, right? And so if you're talking about someone like Jalen Rose, he, he didn't know his dad. He knew him by his name. That is my father. His name is whatever his name was, right? You, there's a difference between knowing your father as Bob Davis and knowing your father as dad. This is saying that, that God is not just the, your, um, the method of your progeny. He's not just the method of your existence. He is your dad. He is an involved father in your life. You are meant to call him Abba. You can say to the God of the universe, that's my dad. Not that's my father or that's my birth father or these sorts of things. He's your dad. Abba, Father. And then uh, 14 says this. The Spirit himself bears witness with, with, uh, with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen, if, you, um, if you've come from a place where you're going, I don't know if I can comprehend this dad stuff. I don't know this dad stuff. I've never really had a dad. And you're like, I don't know what to do with it. Verse 14 is for you. If you know Jesus, then the Spirit is in your life. The Spirit makes all kinds of promises to you. All kinds of awesome promises uh, uh, to you. Uh, It's going to help you in your weakness. It's going to conform you to the image of the Son. It does all kinds of things. But it also says this. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If you're having trouble dealing with who God is and dealing with the fact that He's your Father, what I would recommend to you is to spend prayerful time in Scripture and prayerful time talking to God and asking this. Spirit of the living God, confirm to me that I am a child of the living God, that I have a dad who loves me, and that dad is God the Father. The Spirit works in you to confirm this. And I know that this is a struggle in our time and in our generation. The only answer for us then is to go to the Spirit because the Spirit is working to confirm this in you, that your dad is God. We need to go back just for a minute and talk about this term. It says, we receive the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. Adoption. So... Uh, you know that a lot of people in this congregation uh, have been have done adoption. You know that a lot of people in this congregation are are adopted, and we don't need to talk deep into that. But I just want to point out something about that. Some people would think, and one of my least favorite jokes in the world, and this is a popular joke on, on TV, uh, is when they they tease the person because the, about that they're adopted. Right? You have a group of brothers and sisters, and they're like. Oh, but you know you, you're adopted as somehow they're outside the family or somehow they're less in the family. I want you to understand that adoption, first off, is not like that. And adoption, especially in the first century in which this is written, is not like that. Adoption is, 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 a, is a, a, uh, an action whereby something happen, happens legally. And so there might be, if you've ever thought about about adoption in your head, you might think of adoption like, like this. It would be so fun to adopt. I'm going to adopt a child, and it's going to always be wonderful, and we'll frolic in fields, and I'll be so fulfilled. And you might imagine that adopting a, a, a child is sort of like adopting a kitten, right? If that is your, your plan, if that is your thought process, you're like, maybe I should adopt. I would suggest that you go ahead and get the kitten, okay? The kitten's eventually going to turn into a cat, at which, at which point it becomes less fun. But 
it'd still be easier than what actual adoption is because adoption is not the method whereby we go out and fulfill ourselves through the rounding up of, a, of other children and bringing them into our, into our family. In fact, what I've learned more than anything is that, first off, adoption is an act of obedience whereby God tells us to go bring children into our family and to love them as our own. So there are times, believe it or not, just like with, your, with, 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 um, with birth children or children that are biologically born into your home, there are times when adoption can be this amazing, crazy struggle, right? There's times when, um, when it doesn't feel at all like you've adopted a kitten. There are times when it feels like maybe you adopted a lion. And there's some struggle to adoption, and there's, there's like times when that's very, very, very hard. And so you find yourself in a place where you've adopted a, a, a child, and you have to ask yourself, okay, I've done this adoption, what now? Right? If, if adoption were adopting a kitten, right? I got a kitten, and the kitten's going to fulfill me, and it's cute and it's fluffy, then you would do what you do when you adopt a kitten, right? We had a cat. Uh, we got a cat once. It was a cute kitten, uh, it, but we got it. It was kind of wild before we got it. And so we brought it home, and we had it in our, in our home, and it was with us. And then our son was born, and the cat attacked it, our, our baby, right? And the cat attacked her by what happened is the, cat, the kitten had been living in a garage before it had ever been socialized, and it didn't deal well with people. So what do you have when you, uh, what do you do when you have a, a cat who attacks an infant? You get rid of the cat, right? And I know some people are like, oh, how'd you get rid of the cat? A uh, baby cat, okay? <laughs> if you don't get that, you need to study, okay? Baby cat. And so we got rid of the cat. Here's the thing. Human adoption comes with those same sorts of things. You get, like, attacked sometimes. And you don't go, okay, well, that happened. I'm going to return the, the human. You don't return a human. Why? Because when you adopt a kitten... Uh, no matter where you adopt a kitten from, like you could go formal and adopt a kitten from a shelter, and you can still bring that kitten back to the shelter. They might not let you adopt a kitten, but plenty of people got kittens. Um, we didn't adopt our kitten from a shelter. We adopted it from being a wild cat in the garage next door to us, which was probably first mistake, right? But then you can go return the kitten to someplace and go, this kitten, we love it. It was cute. It actually grown into uh, more of a cat, but it was mean. And it attacked humans, right? And I'm not telling you that the kitten was a lion, but the cat was big enough to hurt a baby, right? So that had to go. With adoption, there is no means of return because what has happened is this, is that adoption is a legal process whereby the government declares the child yours. They declare the child yours not in the way that, that, that a kitten might declare, be declared yours, but they declare it yours in a binding legal sort of way. The, the adoption of a child is so official and so legal that after adoption, a couple months after the adoption, you receive in the mail a certificate. On that birth certificate is the name of the child you have adopted. And on that birth certificate is the name of the parents who adopted that child. Now, on the birth certificate, does the birth certificate ever at any point mention that this was an adoption? It does not. Because the law does not care. There is no legal difference between having a child who is born to you, you physically and adopting a child. In the eyes of the law, the legal parents are the parents who are on the birth certificate. And the old birth certificate is in fact shredded. It exists no more. So that all the legal power, all of the legal vestiges in this concept that the adopted child belongs to the adopted family that is what the birth certificate says. So that if you look at the birth certificate, the name on the birth certificate, 
our case, for father would be David Drake, and the name on the birth certificate for mother would be Libby Drake, and it looks exactly like every other birth certificate we've ever had in our family. My point is this, is that there is no difference in the eyes of the law between something born to you, uh, a child born to you physically and to a child adopted by you. They are both legally and irrevocably yours. Now, in some places, uh, it, it is possible, you could, with a birth child, you could be a bad parent, right? And you could go, birth child, I'm going to disown you. You are no longer my child. And with that, and we never, most of us don't relate to this because because we don't have inheritances to give, right? Right. But let's say let's let's play a, let's let's play pretend. Um, let's pretend that any of us had anything that we could leave to somebody, right? Um, like if I were to write a will, uh, I've got two old cars and three sticks of gum. That's what I. But let's say that I'm gonna. In a lot of states, you okay? I could go. I have a, a daughter who was born to me, my oldest daughter. I do not like her anymore. She has bothered me. I disinherit her. I take her out of my will. She would no longer have access to my cars or my sticks of gum. Right? Which, in my case, is no big deal. In her case, no big deal. She'd be like, I don't really want that. Right? However, there are laws all over the country that say this. If you have adopted a child and they have become yours by law, you cannot legally disinherit an adopted child. Adoption is permanent. I know for a fact that that is the law in the state of Tennessee. I went to a conference on adoption there. The law in the state of Tennessee says this. An adopted child may not and cannot be disinherited. They are legally the child of the adopted parent. That gets closer to what's happening here in adoption in Scripture. Adoption in Scripture in the first century went like this. A person might have had some birth children, but they didn't really care for the birth children that much. They're like, oh man, that birth child is going to give me a bad name, right? And so the birth child's out running the, running the street. And so they go, you know, I need someone to come along who will carry on my name and someone who I can give my inheritance to. Now, in this case, they had larger inheritances. They had much more. There's property ownership. There's other kinds of things. They know that they need someone to be an heir or someone to receive the inheritance. And so in the first century, they would go out and they would find someone who they thought was better to carry on their name. So let's say then... uh, I have a firstborn son. I look at the firstborn son and I go, uh, I don't really want my legacy to be him. You know, I mean, okay, it's fine, but I don't want my legacy to be him. I then could go out and find somebody else to carry on my name. And what I would also do then was to give my inheritance or the larger part of my inheritance to the person whom I adopted. So adoption in the first century was interesting. I know the joke in our culture is, oh, you're adopted. You must be loveless, which is a lie, by the way, a complete and total lie. I hate that joke. But in the first century, it was kind of the opposite. Oh, you're adopted. You must be loved more because they had chosen the one who got to carry on their name and they had chosen the one who got to be the heir or to receive their inheritance. Okay. So understanding that, understand this, though you then, if you are in Christ Jesus, are an adopted child of the king. You are an adopted child of God. He has made you his. This transaction is a legal transaction. It is also an irrevocable legal transaction. It's like the laws of Tennessee. Your birth certificate has been altered. The only, the only parentage known is this, is that you are a child of God most high. You have become his child. He has made you his. He has adopted you. Now, 
This should go and mitigate against, again, this idea that we should be uh, pleasing to God or that we, we gain friendship with God by our behavior because the reality is is that the God who adopted you knew every sin that you would ever commit. All, you know all those sins that you have in your life that you feel super guilty about, that you don't want to tell anybody about, all those things that you're ashamed of? God knows all of those. And he knows them well. And he knows that you commit them regularly. He knows all the most shameful things that your heart and your mind have thought and said and done. He knows all of the worst of you. And yet he has chosen you. That should convince you more than anything that his choice of you was not based upon anything in you. Or not based upon your behavior. Or not based upon your ability to be a good boy. That adoption is about something else. And in this case, it's about a loving God who wanted to adopt us because of our need for him. Not his need for us. So, God chooses to adopt us. He makes us His. We then become heirs. We then get access to, to, to the inheritance. Now, if you were my heir, and you were going to receive my inheritance, you're going to receive almost nothing. You're not getting anything good out of that deal. However, I dare say that if you are a child of the living God, that your inheritance is significant. That your inheritance is amazing. That your inheritance is large. And we'll, we'll make this point now. The Spirit Himself bears with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs. Of who? Of God. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I want you to understand what this just said. That God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for the sins that you commit so that He could rescue you. That is the, the legal transaction that made adoption possible happens in the fact that Jesus dies for the sins of us. Then God makes us His sons and then He makes us co-heirs with Christ or we get to receive the inheritance that Jesus receives. Think about that. Now Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is present at creation. Jesus was on a cross, put in a grave, walked out of a grave alive, and brought the salvation of all the people uh, who the Father has called. He bought your salvation. Jesus walked on water. Jesus multiplied uh, 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 five fish and two loaves into thousands and thousands and thousands of fish and loaves, and fed the multitude. Jesus caused a dead man to walk. Jesus healed lepers. Jesus did all of these things. And you would think, if you look at Jesus, you're going, listen, if I'm a son like Jesus, but Jesus is my older brother, uh, dad's probably going to like him more because he's Jesus. And he did. But this is what it says, is that when God is going to give you your inheritance, he is going to give you a co-inheritance with Jesus. Now, you would think in our culture, go, I like that one better. I'm going to give a greater inheritance. You get to participate in the inheritance of Jesus. You're a co-heir with Jesus. The things that are due Jesus somehow get applied to you. The gifts that were going to be given to Jesus somehow get given to you. The blessings that were going to be given to Jesus somehow get given to you. The only thing you don't share in is his praise. You don't get the worship that is due him, but you get the rewards that come to him. All the rewards of the Father and the rewards that are coming from the Father, I've got to tell you, are not like my two cars and three sticks of gum. He is the owner of all that there is. In Scripture, it calls him the one who is the... Uh, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is a fancy way to say everything that is, is his. All the gold, all the silver, all the money, all the power, all of the universe. This is the God who owns the planets. Mars is his. Venus is his. 
All the stars and all of the galaxies are his. He owns them. And you get to be a recipient or an heir of those things. You get to share in the blessings of this God. Because you're a co-heir with Jesus. That's what it means to be a son and a daughter. So what I want you to hear again and again and again and again and again is this. Who are you? If you know Jesus, then you are a son or a daughter of the living king. You are justified. Your condemnation has been set aside. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been taken from from slavery to sin and made a slave to righteousness. All of these things are true if you are in him. Now, how then? How then to be in him? The answer is not to work harder. The answer is not to try harder. The answer is not to try and be a better boy. You can't do it. The answer is to surrender. Right? Sometimes people adopt us. Adopt infants. And they're always a good example of this because you know what infants never chose? Their own adoption. They were chosen by the parents. For the good will by the goodwill of the parents to adopt them, to love them, and to make them. What it takes from you is this is surrender. Let God adopt you. Let God make you his. Let God call you son. Let God call you daughter. Call God Abba. Dad. He is your father. You, if you know Jesus, are a son and a daughter, or a daughter of the living God. That should change the way you wake up and the way you feel about yourself in the morning. It should change the way you feel about yourself in the noonday. It should change the way you feel about yourself when you lay your head on the pillow. It should change everything. You are a son or a daughter of the living God of the universe. Everything that is His, He is going to pour out on you because of His Son, Jesus. Not because of anything you do. Not because of how you've earned it. Not because you lived up to it. Not because you measured up to it. None of that. Because He wants to. And because He loves you. And because He wants you. That's good news. There is a dad. His name is Yahweh. There is a dad. His name is El Shaddai. There is a God. His name is El Elyano. These are the names of God. There is a God. His name is Jehovah Jireh. These are, there is a God. He has a name. And he has manifested himself through the person of Jesus so that he is a, can adopt you and give you his last name as well. That's good news. A child of the living God. Pray with me.